for the week of April 2nd, 2023. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 613, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jace Sperling Reich. And in Geneva, Switzerland, at the world headquarters of Showbiz Sandbox, I'm Michael Giltz. Wait a second. Do I have to get a special visa now to work for Showbiz Sandbox? Because I'm not. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And a working visa. I'm at the world headquarters because we're trying to put on a show and there is breaking news hitting us left, right and center. Um, As we are trying to get on the air, we have the Actors' Equity issuing a strike warning against the Broadway League over touring productions. Shows tour all around the country, of course. Broadway approved tours with Actors' Equity. You always, when you can, want to see shows that are of Actors' Equity actors in them. They're the best quality. My mom just saw Come From Away here in Birmingham, Alabama, and they loved it. And uh, it's they've been negotiating since January. The Actors' Equity is asking for higher per diems because costs are soaring and people are having to dip into their salary just to pay for like their hotel room. They're not living it up. They're like per diem costs have exploded. You need to help us cover more of that. And they also want to reflect reality and have more coverage on the road for when actors and managers are sick. There's almost no coverage for people. So when they're sick, like the show doesn't happen or it's a nightmare or they have to go on even when they shouldn't. So they want more coverage. Two fairly reasonable demands and they've made no headway since January. So they are issuing a strike warning saying this could happen. My mom will be annoyed because she wants to see To Kill a Mockingbird in the fall. Uh, the writer's strike, of course, is looming, we fear. Oh, the that's, last that's ten- happening. That is... That's happening. That's happening. <laughs> you know why? Because the, la- because the, the studios want it to happen. Because what will happen after a certain number of days of that strike... The studios and the producers get to say, force majeure, all contracts are canceled. So the studios actually want it to happen. Well, do they? Because the last time it lasted for over a year, right? No, no, no. Three months. Three months. Didn't the writers gain on that strike? Didn't they, didn't they a little get a bit, victory? A little bit. But the writers I'm talking to are like, you know, usually they get the list of demands from the writers, uh, you know, from the WJ, and they're like, oh, God, okay, fine. They're arguing over VHS. It's 2020. You know, like, <laughs> they're just always... But this time, most of the writers I spoke have spoken with when they opened the, you know, pattern of demands, the, the list of demands that they have, they were like, which oh. we've Which we've reported about on the show. Yeah, we, they, they were like, oh, actually, no, no. The, this list actually makes... It kind of makes sense. The last writer's strike was 16 years ago in 2007 into 2008. Um, It went into a new year. Uh, So that's happening. Disney, of course, is leaving the metaverse. They've been firing people and Facebook is spending a gazillion dollars on the metaverse and nobody cares. Disney's leaving the metaverse. Has that all petered out even before it began? Not really, but it's not that big a deal. In the UK, fire broke out on the set of Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. I hope the Shire is okay. Well, I think it was uh, Sauron's fault. I mean, let's face it. We all know whose fault it was he is that flaming eye right and of course the shire is not involved yet because i don't think it even exists it's long before the shire happened by the way before anybody writes to me i know it could be smog's fault as well he's the dragon the fire breathing dragon so he may not be alive this is thousands of years earlier sauron is around but i'm not sure about smog but those who know about dragons let us know not yet though sperling uh bob Iger just denounced Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida with a strongly worded statement. He said, look, they are punishing us as a business and punishing the Florida economy because of a political stance that we took, which is 
companies should be allowed to do that. He said it's not only anti-Disney, it's really anti-Florida because it's going to hurt tourism. It's going to hurt the state. It's going to hurt people who work in Florida. We're one of the major employers in this state, and we're there to do our job, and we're allowed to speak out if we want to on public issues, especially when they affect our employees. So, you know, that's also anti-democratic. But he really went out and strongly and said, you know, we're not going to just lay low here. He is being anti-Florida. He's not helping this state. We'll see how that plays out. And finally, Moana. They're doing a live-action Moana, and hilariously, Dwayne Johnson will be in that as well. He's probably the only person who could voice Maui, a shape-shifting legendary demigod, in an animated movie, and then they say, hey, you could play that in live-action, too. You know, like if I did the voice of a shape-shifting legendary demigod, they would say, yeah, thanks. (laughs) We're 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 going in a different direction for the live-action version. (laughs) Yeah, you know, somebody who looks more like, I don't know, Dwayne Johnson. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And finally, breaking news on James Patterson, but we've thrown that into inside baseball. So my God, Sperling, what else are we going to talk about this week? I think we covered everything. So thank you very much. Uh, We'll be- Good night. Yes. Well, good this night and good luck. Yes. Uh, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we have the latest box office news, of course, as always. They told us John Wick 4 was the final chapter. Then they, of course, saw the box office grosses, so maybe John Wick 5 isn't out of the question. Michael was so confused about what the new version of MoviePass was, by the way, and he, he signed up for it just to f- figure out what is MoviePass these days. He's here to tell us, but here's the thing. Spoiler alert, not before canceling his subscription. So... <laughs> He's already not already, already out. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Warner Brothers Discovery head David Zaslov took a massive two hundred million dollar pay cut. Wow. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, mind you, he's still making more this year than I'll probably ever make in my entire life. But still, not probably, not probably. Yeah. I mean, will yeah, he's made more? Forty forty million is more than you will make in your entire life. He made yeah. forty million. So yes, you will not make. Well, that. now I have something to strive for. On Inside Baseball, we'll look at best-selling author James Patterson, who was taking on the New York Times and its bestseller list. Good luck with that, by the way. Uh, we mean good good luck with that. That's that's kind of what we meant. Uh, uh, I, I don't know what we mean. James Patterson is pretty powerful. That's what I'm no, trying to say. No, we're meaning good luck for the New York Times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not, not James Patterson. <laughs> of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right, and we're looking at box office around the world. For the week ending April 2nd, we cover the entire week's grosses. Why ignore Monday through Thursday? It makes no sense, Hollywood. And guess what? They say John Wick is back, and yeah, I'm thinking he's back. John Wick Chapter 4, still the number one film at the box office, $107 million this week. It's at $254 million worldwide. It cost $100 million to make. It will easily quadruple that. Uh, it will certainly, you know, it will it, it will get to $400 million, I believe. Um, the first movie grossed $89 million. The second one almost doubled that at $170 million. The third one almost doubled that at $320 million. Will this get to $600 million? Maybe. But no matter what, it's already very successful. And a film that looked definitively like it was the final film, like, well, maybe we can make number five. (laughs) At number two around the world, we have Dungeons & Dragons. It opened up to $72 million. Decent opening, especially for a video game movie. Those are hard to pull off. This cost $150 million to make. So that's going to have to have a really strong multiple. But... You know, the reviews are good. The, the audience uh, uh, cinema scores are good. It's not doing great in China, but in the rest of the world, it had a pretty solid opening, and it's got some, 
It's got some uh, runway before the next big movie comes out, so maybe it'll pull it off. Anything but good reviews. That's the one thing it doesn't have. (laughs) Uh, uh, I thought it did. I thought it got friendly reviews, Dungeons & Dragons. I mean, surprisingly friendly. It didn't? Actually, no. You know, now that I'm looking at it, I have to say this. Those reviews that I read were not positive. No. And now again, Rotten Tomatoes is at 90%, which sounds awesome. But you have to actually look at them and say, did they say, well, it's not so bad for a damn thing. It's like, you know, it depends who's saying it and how positive they are. And they're like, you know what? It's all right. <laughs> but that's pretty good well, well, for a video Kyle game Kyle Smith of the Wall Street Journal said, it's a blizzard of rubbish. <laughs> Put that on your poster. <laughs> Why are you reading Kyle Smith? <laughs> just because, just because he, you know, it's a blizzard of rubbish. <laughs> Brian Lowry at CNN says this lighthearted adventure looks like a winner. New York Magazine said, you know what? If you're going to take it seriously, don't. <laughs> <laughs> But it's all right. So, you know, the reviews were pretty friendly for a genre that usually gets pilloried. Uh, Anyway, one movie that's getting great reviews is Suzumi. The Japanese animated film is doing terrifically well. Another $40 million this week. It's at $220 million worldwide. It opens up here in the U.S. in a week, a week and a half. Shazam! Fury of the Gods. This would be our first serious flop of the year. $18 million this week. It's at $120 million, barely equaling the $110 million budget and falling fast. But uh, here's another mid-sized movie, Scream 6. $33 million it cost to make the sixth one in the franchise, and it made $14 million this week. It's at $150 million worldwide. Mid-sized movies... Movies that cost between 20 and $80 million, those are incredibly important to the box office. They keep the lights on, they keep people going to the theater, and they turn into, uh, you know, really good franchises like John Wick. Now, the new one cost $100 million, but it started off as a mid-sized movie, and right below Scream 6 is Creed 3. That, the only the third one only cost $75 million to make. It's at $260 million worldwide. So we have three very solid mid-sized movie franchises launched by movies that cost 20 to $80 million. That's this spot that people said, oh, it doesn't work anymore. You know, you've got to make a big movie or a really small movie. But guess what? Mid-sized movies are really important. You've also got, uh, you know, the... Um, Uh, What was the Tom Brady? 80 for Brady movie. Those movies really keep people going to the theaters. Cocaine Bear by Elizabeth Banks. That costs 30 million. That's about to hit 90 million. Jesus Revolution. That's slightly below midsize, but a faith-based movie. That's at 50 million. So those movies can really pay off for people. Not always. 65, the sci-fi flick starring Adam Driver. That's a bit of a flop, but you only spent $45 million, so the flops don't hurt as much. And I guarantee you, people will watch that on streaming. They'll look at Adam Driver and they'll be like, oh, ooh, I want to see that. I guarantee you. And, the, and the, adver- the advertising from the theatrical will, will, will Correct. you know, help it over there. And so when a movie dies hard and fast, that <laughs> die hard, that's when a, mid- a movie should be, you know, the, the theaters should say it's all right. Throw it on streaming right away. We don't have to wait 90 days or even 45 days because it's not working. But 45 days is plenty quick. So back to the charts. We've gone through all the mid-sized movies on the chart. Now we're in China where Post-Truth is really doing well. We don't know the budget, but it's at $84 million in counting. And we have another new film called Hachiko. That's a Chinese drama starring Joan Chen. 
It opened to about $9 million. It's based on a famous story of a professor whose dog was incredibly loyal and waited for him every day after work. And then I believe he, it's an old story. He dies and the dog goes and waits for him every day and it breaks everybody's heart and everybody cries and it's adorable. So this is that story told yet again with an adorable little puppy going up to be a dog who loves his master. So if that's your cup of tea, you might really enjoy this. Speaking of tea, we're headed to India where Bola... The indie Hindi action film just opened up to about $7 million. Uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, another movie that's really falling hard and fast. That's at $470 million. It's going to struggle to get to $500 million. Not good for a movie that cost $200 million to make. And it wouldn't be so bad if it was the COVID era or had great reviews and just for some reason didn't click. Everything about this movie did not work. Everything worked for Avatar The Way of Water. That's a $2,311,000,000 worldwide. Uh, we mentioned the faith-based film Jesus Revolution. It's a movie for everybody if it's well-made. That's certainly what they're hoping for with His Only Son. This is a faith-based film. It's based on the story from the Old Testament where Abraham is asked by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. It's like a two-minute story, but lots of flashbacks fill in uh, the whole film, so it's not a short. It's an actual feature-length film. It cost about $250,000 to make, and they're claiming it's the first film to have a wide release that was crowdfunded. They raised like $1.3 million to open this movie on 1,900 screens, and it worked. It opened to $5 million. If they spend about a million and a half on the budget and on crowdfunding a wide release, well, guess what? They tripled their budget on their opening weekend. Wait a second. So was the film the budget of the film or was it the, the distribution? Film's, the film's budget was $250,000. And then they raised $1.3 million to do a wide release, including, I assume, P&A and everything that was involved in a wide release. They released it on 1,900 screens. So that would mean about $1.5 million in budget and all the P&A and everything, marketing, everything. And that movie opened up to $5 million on its opening weekend. Wow. Okay. Something for you to look at on Celluloid Junkie. Yes, I was just thinking the same thing, actually. That's why I... How did you find out about this? I care. And I listen to Showbiz Sandbox every week. When I see a movie on Showbiz Sandbox, or I see a movie on the charts that I'm not familiar with from anywhere in the world, I look it up. I go, what is this? And I looked it up, and then I read some more, and I looked up some stories. and said, well, that's interesting. So I put it in the show notes. You know, and, but I also like reading Cellular Junkie. Your newsletter just came out from Patrick about something about sustainability. It just arrived as we were going on the air, so I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But maybe the next one will include more info on his only son. And if we got the, if the details are wrong, you'll let us know. Actually, the truth is whatever. But it's, they're claiming it's the first crowdfunded wide release. Right below that is a movie that doesn't need any help. It's Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Doing great. It's at $480 million worldwide. Then we have a bunch of movies that made $4 million, $3 million, $2 million, $1 million. Uh, Two new movies in China, Nothing But You, which looks like a romantic drama about a tennis player and a woman who becomes his manager. They fall in love. To be continued. This is sign of interesting. I believe it's a documentary about saving a landmark theater in Hong Kong. It opened to $4 million, which doesn't seem possible. Most documentaries would not open that big, certainly not one like this. And I can't recall 
the last time we had a, a documentary film in China that was not like a patriotic, you must go see this movie type documentary where everybody felt obliged or was taken by their business to it, given a ticket and said, go see that movie. It's important. So this looks like a more organic example of a documentary scoring on the Chinese charts. I'm certainly looking forward to seeing Full River Red. The Zhang Yimou film opened up in North America. Uh, it hasn't come to where I am yet, but it's at $674 million worldwide. And um, uh, another Chinese film, The Best is Yet to Come, is chugging along. It's about a freelance journalist in China fighting against corruption. It's at $8 million. And, uh, oh, here in America, 1001. This is a Sundance drama about a mom taking back her child out of the nightmare of foster care, at least for this child, and fighting the system to keep her child with her. It opened up to about $1.8 million, along with another film called A Good Person, which is a indie drama starring Morgan Freeman and Florence Pugh. That also opened up to $1.8 million. Did you see 1001 at Sundance? I did. There's a little bit of a twist at the end, so I will tell you, I'm stay sure. through the end. Uh, well, shouldn't they? Is it, is it not good? Oh, no, it's good. Would they be willing? Would, I think it won Sundance, if I'm not mistaken. It was the, oh. the winner of Sundance. And uh, a good person was directed by Zach Braff. Who is? Oh, Zach Braff. Right. So sort of a, when was the last film he did? It's been a while. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. It has been a while. Um, and, and by the way, this crowdfunding was really more of an investment. I, I'm looking this up now. Okay. Well, I mean, they can get their money back, yeah. but they, they took they, 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 they didn't just say, take our money. They said, if it clicks, we get money back. Okay. Yeah. But that's still unusual, isn't it? Yes, it is. Very. Yes. Um, 1001 was the grand jury prize winner at Sundance for drama. So it was Minari in 2020, Coda in 2021, Nanny in 2022, and 1001 in 2023. So that's a pretty august list for that, that movie to be on. So there it is opening up, and Sperling says it's worth checking out. Maybe so was Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, if you've got a mom. It just hit $30 million worldwide, and its budget was probably around $10 million. So that's a winner. And Sperling, you probably know more about this than I do. Cineworld, the owner of Regal, is restructuring. They've made a deal. They're going to retire about $4.5 billion in debt and all those debtors will take an equity stake in the company. What's left if they get $4.5 billion of the company? Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, but this is, this is uh, brand new news, actually. Oh, well, and break, that's why you... That's why you record showbiz to find out what's going on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but so that's yeah. They've they've they're just breaking news again a little bit earlier today. It's been finalized. Um, presumably, Cinderella will just keep going along. It's not going to dramatically change the company or how they do business or constrain them in any way. Or it certainly will relieve them of some debt. So hopefully, as we pull out of COVID, they'll be able to do fine. Certainly, Cineworld, just like a lot of other chains, has their own loyalty program. I belonged to AMC's loyalty program for a while, though I stopped because there were just no movies out for me to watch. So why was I paying $20 a month? I was only seeing one movie. Well, MoviePass came up and I said, you know what? I couldn't figure out exactly what they were offering. You, you get credit for $10 a month and then you use the credit and then you, get, you buy more credit. I, I couldn't figure it out. So I subscribed. I got MoviePass, got a card. I paid $10 a month. Uh, most places would take just the physical card or some of them would allow me to log in online and get a ticket that way. And for $10 a month, I got X amount of credit. I'm like, okay. So then I went to AMC to see Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It was a $5 value. 
It took 70%. It took $7 of my $10 credit in order to buy that ticket. So I'm like, okay, that cost me more than what I would have paid if I just bought it. Not sure how this is working. Then the next time I want to go to a movie, I'm supposed to buy more credit and then use the credit, which costs me more than the actual ticket, to buy a ticket. And eventually I will get some bonus credit. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. I'm handing you money for a faux credit card so you can make money off the money I've given you every month and charge me more than I would be charged if I got the the ticket right away and eventually give me a little bonus. Uh, No. So I'm not thinking it's really going to catch on. I belonged to the original MoviePass for years. It was a financial disaster, but not a bad idea. And everybody has emulated it. So full credit to them. Uh, but they're not going to be able to pull it off. So, on their so own. just to I, get this straight, you you basically bought a five dollar ticket for seven dollars of your ten dollars. That's right. I was left thirty percent left of the credit that I had purchased with that original ten dollars. So I'm like, yeah, uh huh. And if I want to buy another ticket, well, I can't do it. I don't have enough credit, so I have to buy the. T- I have to give put money on that card and then buy the ticket, and then they, you know that card gives me certain credit, and then I can get the ticket, and then I have some credit remaining over. Except it's not, an, you know, it's like <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Like you're going through all these hoops just to give them money so you can get credit, so you can buy a ticket that you could buy cheaper directly. Now, eventually you would get some sort of bonus, but guess what? AMC has their own loyalty plan and you're not going to be able to top that. So it really doesn't make any sense, I'm afraid. Maybe they'll tweak it. I Fair think, I think they're they now do, in the we'll beta stage where they're trying to figure out things like well, this. They I'm are, sure they, but, they, they, but they can't. They can't figure it out because they don't have deals with the theater chains. They're just a fancy credit card that costs you extra money rather than saving you money. So it's not going to work. Wait, <laughs> it didn't work before. Which, uh, <laughs> which theater chain did you go to? Uh, I went to AMC okay, and yeah, I went to a right. sidewalk cinema. I went to sidewalk cinema as well, a local art house. Yeah, okay. It's the art houses so you, that they're cutting deals with. It's not the AMC. AMC well, doesn't it, need them, so of course they're not. And they, deals. they didn't have a deal with Sidewalk Cinema, okay, which is yeah. not it's only one theater in one city, so no surprise. Yeah. They need money. So does Universal Music CEO Lucian Grange. I don't know how to say his name, but how's he doing financially? He well, I think uh he's doing quite well because uh I think he got a five year extension recently for what uh I know it's, everybody's salary is being reduced. I know that. But when you're already starting- These are tough times. These yeah. are hard times. When you're starting from a, a gazillionaire and you're, you know, you're going to billionaire, well, so, gee, I'm sorry. So what, so what happened to him? What happened to him? Well, he, was the, uh, he is the CEO of uh, Universal Music. And I think he went from like 10 million to 5 million. No, like 15 million. It was oh, okay. reduced by about two thirds. So it went from 15 million down to five. So, you know. But he gets really $100 hurting. million dollars in stock. So what's the, you know, it's like, yeah. come on. So, so he gets $5 million, which should be, no, hold on. He also gets $10 million based on performance. So that'll bring him right back up to his $15 million salary last year. Plus he gets up to a $20 million extra in equity, something or other. And... For this year alone, he also gets a one-time bonus of $100 million in stock. So it's like, yeah, okay, he took a two-thirds cut in his salary. Except it's actually, instead of $15 million, it's $140 million. <laughs> so not so much of a cut. That's not true for David Zaslav. He went from $240 million down to $40 million. 
Ouch. Well, actually, I mean, it's, yes, like he got that bonus last year for, you know, merging the companies and actually getting it through. And God bless him. Yes. No, he's doing God's work. <laughs> like you say, like he deserves it. Nobody deserves $250 million for a publicly owned company. Nobody ever. Not in the history of the world. Anyway, he was on the list of million. most overpaid CEOs. All CEOs are overpaid so. if you're an actual worker at the company. But he didn't get $40 million. I'm wrong. He only got $39.3 million, to which I say, for the love of God, just give him $40 million. Do you think it's too tacky? <laughs> like, they're embarrassed to give him $40 It's $39.3. You know, we're, it's like we, we figured it out down to the dime exactly what he deserves. Well, I feel, I feel bad. We're paying attention to him, but we're also paying attention to Gwyneth Paltrow. Sperling didn't even know that she won her trial. Yeah, I wasn't. Really, I, I knew that. I, I didn't know she was on trial until the, it was halfway over. What? Then I didn't what? care. <laughs> what? I don't That's care outrageous. About, I don't care what? about these things. You know, and then when you saw what it was all about, you're just like, oh, geez. All right. People and people hit each other on the slopes. It was very silly. Got unbelievable amount of suppressed attention. I didn't pay attention either. But it turns out she won. She won a dollar because she countersued. And he has to pay her lawyer fees. So that's going to hurt. <laughs> anyway, what shocked me was this was not carried live on CNN as far as I know. They were not following the no. trial day to day, though they're probably wishing they, they had. Were, they were following they saw... it day to day. That's how I found out. No, about. no, I'm saying they weren't in the courtroom showing it live or no. anything no, 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 like no. they have done. So they probably regret that because this trial reached more than 30 million people, and that's not a complete number. The Law and Crime Network streams on YouTube, and they reached 16.5 million people on that platform alone. Another 7.4 million people they reached on Facebook, 4.2 million on TikTok. And that 30 million viewership does not include people watching court TV or the live feed from the Associated Press and other outlets and venues. So a lot of people paid attention to this. That's as much as like Game of Thrones, House of Dragons and The Last of Us. That's a lot of people. And that's just going to make them all say, you know what, maybe we should have carried it live. <laughs> so people, people find better things to do. I mean, it's really not a big deal if Gwyneth Paltrow has a trial. Sure, she made some silly comments. Sure, the guy was foolish. But, you know, come on, give it a rest. Well, wait, that's not a big deal. I didn't think it was a big deal. Wait a second. Whoa. You're right, actually. If oh my that's God. not a big deal, it must be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story is about cancellation. What TV shows have been... Ca oh, no, actually... It's about cancel culture. That's the thing, because maybe the, uh, that whole cancel culture thing should work more on its canceling. The idea that America is gripped by a new wave of liberal puritanism and anyone who steps out of line will be canceled forever is proving harder. It. Yeah, proving harder and harder to defend. You know, Florida is where woke goes to die. Uh, J.K. Rowling uh, just saw the BBC apologize for not defending her enough and renewing her crime series for another season. Dave Chappelle and Louis C.K. keep collecting Grammys and selling out shows. And country superstar Mark Morgan Whalen, I, I always want to call him Morgan Whalen, but it's Morgan Whalen. He is the hottest act around. His new double album is at number one on the Billboard charts for the fourth week in a row. He's now tied with Bad Bunny for the artists with the second most weeks at number one this decade. Of course, you know, Taylor Swift is at number one, but isn't she kind of in her own universe? I mean, does she, pretty much. She got her own list. Wallen took a break when a drunken video made him persona non grata just when his career was 
bursting wide open. And apparently the timeout hasn't hurt him at all. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, I, I think it's a, it's a big deal. It clarifies to people, look, this is, you know, this is not really happening. The idea that, you know, people have consequences for things they say and do. They always have. They always will. But no, there's not some new Puritan world order that's going to keep people in line. People will always misbehave. And sometimes their fans won't care. Or sometimes people will feel they paid the right price or have made amends, like perhaps some people feel about Morgan Whalen. And sometimes they just, you know, they, they don't want to listen to them again or watch them again or read them again. It happens. But this is called life. There's no such thing as cancel culture. Okay, kids, if you're selling the rights to any intellectual property, always remember that receiving net points on a project mm-hmm. it makes it's great. Well, here's the thing. If you print it out, if you print out your contract, then yeah. it makes for really nice wallpaper. If it's electronic, then I've got, I've got news for you. It's, it's worth nothing. I mean, it's, you've probably now, it now cost you money because you have to display it on a computer and you need electricity for that. Uh, the, the latest <laughs> to realize this is Rosalind Wiseman, the author of the nonfiction book, Queen Bees and Wannabes, the inspiration for the movie Mean Girls, which was turned into a Broadway musical and a made for TV sequel among other items. Wiseman was paid $400,000 for the rights, receiving the money and, and those magical net profits. She also readily acknowledges giving up rights to all spinoffs, like a sequel or a Broadway musical. Mistake number one. But she feels aggrieved and calls out Tina Fey, saying she didn't want to criticize her, but hearing Fey talking about women supporting other women and all that finally got under her skin, and so here she is. Wiseman says Fey and Paramount need to do the right thing. Paramount says the film has yet to show a net profit. Its reported budget was $17 million and it grossed $130 million worldwide. So definitely no profit there. Big deal or big whoop? It's a big whoop, of course. I, uh, it'll never go to trial, um, but I don't think they're going to hand her more cash. I don't think she really has a case. I, I think she had good lawyers. I think she should have known better. People don't know this stuff necessarily unless they're in the business, but she'd have to have really bad lawyers not to make clear to her, you're getting $400,000, so you ain't getting anything else. (laughs) That's it. Enjoy it. You hit the jackpot for a nonfiction book that is not an obvious intellectual property goldmine. You know, it's not like she had Harry Potter or something. You know, this is just a nonfiction book that they happen to pick up. Uh, The thing that also gets under my skin is she really sort of calls out Tina Fey like she's not being good. It's like, first of all, Tina Fey has nothing to do with it. It's paramount. Tina Fey is not deciding whether the movie is profitable or not. That's on Paramount. That's got nothing to do with her. I don't know what she thinks Tina Fey is supposed to be doing or how Tina Fey is mistreating her. Well, she was one of the producers, I I guess, so. She doesn't decide whether Paramount can rule whether the film is in in profits or not. That is 100% Right, she's got, she she herself will not see profits. I was just going to say that. I was just going to say she's in the same boat, by the way. They're rowing the same boat. Well, no, she's not because she might very well have had gross points, though I doubt it. Yeah, I doubt it. But, you know, it's a small movie. But, She's just, you know, she's not the person that you're fighting with. It's Paramount. Don't try and drag her name into it, good or bad or indifferent. I'm not like a huge Tina Fey fan, but that sort of didn't sit well with me. And, you know, the stage musical, Recoup from Broadway alone, despite COVID shortening its run and it's touring successfully, uh, it, you know, so it's just come to Birmingham, actually, or just about to. And a movie version of the stage musical is in pre-production. I get it. She feels like, damn, I should have asked for more, gotten more. It's it's such a, you know, a gold mine, it turns out. But that's not because of her book. It's because of the movie made from her book that was, you know, really created by Tina Fey and others. So I get her feeling aggrieved. 
Don't drag Tina Fey into it. It's not her fault. However, having said all that, you should have had better lawyers. You should have known. Give me a break. Well, also- Give me a break. Paramount, $17 million, and it's grossed $130 million worldwide. Give me a break, Paramount. Well, I think it's almost like, like, uh, you know, for years there was this whole thing with, you know, if you had an HMO, a health maintenance organization type health plan here in the US, Uh the thing was uh, they'd always say no. Like, hey, my head fell off. Uh, can you help me put it back on? Or my, I accidentally sawed my hand off. Can you help me sew it back on? And they'd go, no. And, and then if you came back, 10% of the people would go, no, seriously, I need you to help me. I had this health problem. They go, okay, well, if you come back, <laughs> then, then you must have a serious issue. So we'll let you come in and get some health care. Well, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, if you can, if you really want to some profit participation and you come to us, and you sue us and you can somehow, somehow prove that it did make a pro. Well, guess what? When you actually have a Broadway show, it's like leading the leading movie on your Paramount Plus network, uh, your your streaming service. Yeah, it probably made a profit. Give me a break. You're not going, you know what? Let's yeah. take that that total bomb we had and turn it into a Broadway musical. That's a smart <laughs> idea. It worked for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, a flop movie that became a hit series. But anyway, you're perfectly right. Um, more breaking news. Do we know this week Amazon is opening up the Ben Affleck film Air exclusively in theaters? Do we know how long it will remain in theaters before they also show it on Amazon? No. And it's an MGM thing, I think. It's it's a secret? No, it's it's Amazon pure, I think. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Did did Uh, they just announce how long it will stay in? Like one week. Well, it owns it owns MGM, so it's their own company. But yeah, no, they haven't announced yet. What, what is going on is that Amazon is doing that with Air. We don't know for how long. And Apple announced it has two movies now getting a big theatrical release. Killers of the Flower Moon, the Scorsese film, opens in Cannes in May. And then it opens in theaters in October with some certain link of exclusive run because it was previously set up at Paramount. Correct. So there were deals already in the works. However, they've now just said Napoleon, the big Ridley Scott film starring Joaquin Phoenix. That too, they say, will have a big... Big theatrical release in theaters on November 22nd, the eve of Thanksgiving, but they're not telling us how long it's exclusive for. So, dude, if this is one day, shut up. We don't care. If it's a week, eh. If it's a month or 45 days, fine. But why are they getting away with just saying, well, we're going to put it in theaters? No credit until we find out how long of a window it actually has. Okay. All right. They probably filmed some of it in L.A. on that great film studio space you people have. Yeah, I don't know about that. No, actually, I uh, passed a bunch of studios being built in Burbank right now. Uh, Because, you know, here's the thing. Los Angeles does remain a world leader in space devoted to sound stages for making movies and TV. For the moment, Film LA did a survey and says Los Angeles remains the single biggest center with some 6.2 million square feet of sound stages. In second place is the UK with 5.4 million square feet. That's an entire country. They're comparing LA to a country. Yeah, well, you know, I guess. Not fair. Not fair, I say. Yeah, good point. Uh, But here's the thing. Three years ago, the UK just had 3.5 million square feet. So it is expanding pretty dramatically. Ontario and Canada has 3.8 million square feet of sound stages. The state of Georgia has 3 million. New York has 2.8 million. And the Canadian province of British Columbia has 2.4 million. So is any of this a big deal or a big whoop? And before you answer, I know somebody from Mm -hmm. Australia is going to be going to be. Oh, right. I'd love to know how much space they have to and New Zealand. 
you know, where, where they just lost the, uh, the uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, but nonetheless, um, they've got great sound stages there as well. There's great sound stages all over the world. We assume it's not as much as 2.4 million, but if it is, call us, let us know. How can they do that? They can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. And that's how you can write to us. If you want to call us, and you can call us, the number is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Now, we're also on Twitter. We're at showbizsandbox is our handle. And we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. A lot of things about this are interesting. First, I tried to find out how much soundstage space there is in the state of California, but uh, I failed. So I'm sure there's more outside of L.A. County. I'd love to know. Uh, If you know, let us know. Sperling just told you how. Still, the growth in the U.K., uh, growing by two-thirds, 3.5 million to 5.4 million. That's a huge amount of growth. That's pretty impressive. The state of Georgia has almost more than New York State. The state of Georgia alone has almost as much as the UK had just a few years ago. That's pretty impressive. And we know there are other states with a lot of sound stages as well. So we've got a lot of capacity in the United States. And New York only has 2.8 million. Well, yeah, it's because it's you know, real estate is really expensive. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, in Manhattan, yeah. you know? <laughs> well, that's why they're usually out in Queens and in Brooklyn. That's right, yeah. my old stomping ground, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, now, uh, you know, maybe what they're shooting on those sound stages is, is TV shows like the, you know, Blue Bloods TV show gets sure. renewed for the 14th season. You know, it's kind of a ho-hum story. Well, the show Blue Bloods, yet another hit franchise for Tom Selleck, by the way, the guy who missed out on Indiana Jones has been making it up ever since with hit TV shows like Magnum P.I. and Jesse Stone and TV movies and now the cop drama Blue Bloods. What makes this renewal interesting is how they made it work. Selleck and other stars of the show and top producers, they all took a 25% pay cut reportedly to make the budget work and keep the show going for another season. So you see, Michael, it's not just CEOs getting pay cuts. It's it's television. <laughs> Everybody. Star. Everybody gets a pay cut. You get a pay cut and you get a pay cut. Well, uh, that keeps hundreds of people on the payroll and lets CBS keep one of its big hits and a cornerstone for Friday night in place, all without breaking the bank. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's, it's, you know, waking up to reality. It's like, look, it's been 14 years. You could say 13 years is long enough, but they're right. If they're happy and they feel creatively fulfilled, they are keeping hundreds of people at work. That's one of the hard parts about saying, let's walk away from this show on top after four seasons or seven seasons, uh, because you're putting a lot of people out of work. You know, it's really hard. Uh, I, have, I know people work on the show The Blacklist. It's coming to an end. And, you know, they love it. They're great. And they're ready for something new, maybe. But now all these people are out of work. It's kind of hard. You know, it's like, wow, now I got that was longer than high school and college put together. Now what do I do? <laughs> so, you know, and compare. Mm-hmm. What, what's interesting about that is so you'll be on a show like that. And what Mm -hmm. you're actually losing by staying on a show like that, yes, you have a job, so that's good, is that there are whole groups of of professionals that kind of come up the ranks and start hiring people. And you don't know them anymore because you're not jumping from show to show because you've only known, you know, 
XYZ I, production I, I, let, let's not let's not spin being on a hit show into a bad thing no no but I, I mean if you're a constant, only helps your it only helps your career and you you have a great credit on a great show it's a good thing yeah I think no absolutely I, I don't really think it hurts you but look compare blue bloods where they're like look we know we've been we got raised after Ray and now we're saying look we want to keep it working look at Yellowstone it's a nightmare there the the studio keeps saying no no we're sure Kevin will be back everything's fine they had the Paley Fest LA event over the weekend and they had a Yellowstone panel and everybody was supposed to show up, including Taylor Sheridan and Kevin Costner. Almost no one showed up, showed up, showed up due to scheduling conflicts. I'm putting that in quotes. And they didn't really announce it until the event began, which was kind of obnoxious. People drove from hours away to see this and they're like, show up and like, no Kevin Costner, no Taylor Sheridan. That was not cool. Everybody involved should have said, we know we're not going. We need to let people know. So that was uncool, but it's a nightmare. Nobody's getting along, so nobody's communicating. The cast who was there confirmed, yeah, season five, part two is supposed to start airing this summer. By the way, it's April. And not only are they not finished wrapping up, they haven't even started shooting. They don't even have a start date yet for season five, part two. This is in total, complete meltdown. Not good. Yeah, well, that's what happens when you get put in big movie stars into into television. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. Sometimes it's not. it is. It's when it's no, it's what happens when you get into conflict. Big movie stars make TV shows all the time and are perfectly well behaved. Yeah. Speaking, you know, of, it, it makes me want to put on a mask and be the villain, and you can be the hero. We can fight it out in the ring. What are you, a lucha libre now? Exactly. Yeah, well, it is the end of the road for the McMahon family, speaking of wrestling. I, I was wrong by that, anyway. It's sort of the end of the road. The end of the beginning for the McMahon yeah. family. It's not the end at all, apparently. <laughs> well, some 70 years after the family entered the pro wrestling business, and some 40 years after he created World Wrestling Entertainment, and one year after he retired, we're talking about Vince McMahon, of course, he is back in charge, briefly, as the WWE held its annual extravaganza, WrestleMania in WrestleMania! Yeah, it was in Los Angeles. I did not go. Uh, you know, McMahon paid the company back some $14 million. Remember all those expenses he had from his repeated sexual misconduct payoffs and to all mm -hmm. the female employees he had to pay off? And, you know, he, mm -hmm. he took back the helm after he did that. Why? Why? Well, uh, so they could then sell off the company in a multi-billion dollar deal. Its new owner? Guess who? The talent agency Endeavor. Which, by the way also owns the Ultimate Fight Club UFC. So whether you enjoy your fighting fake or real, they've got you covered. The combined fighting behemoth will be spun off into its own standalone company worth some $21 billion. $21 billion, that's remarkable. Ari Emanuel is the CEO, McMahon is the executive chair, and Dana White remains head of UFC. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? It's probably a big whoop. By the way, the UFC stands for Ultimate Fighting Championship. It is not about uh, Fight Club. You don't talk about Fight Club. Oh, so okay. remember that. It's the Ultimate Fighting Championship, the UFC. Uh, so they do not have the rights to Fight Club. I bet they wish they did. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, remember when Ari Emanuel wanted to be the mantle of Hollywood liberals and be their spokesperson and be the conscience of Hollywood? His brother, of course, is Rahm Emanuel, who also prefers power to principle. That's my own personal take. Anyway, he's now in bed permanently with Vince McMahon and Dana White, two very problematic people. Let's not forget Dana White and his wife got in a public fight where he slapped her. 
physically hit her in public. Will Hollywood actors care? Are they going to walk away from Endeavor because of his association? No, probably not. Not at all. Uh, It's, yeah, that's like, that's the, yeah, they're not going to do it. It's business. They all want to make money. Well, you know, speaking of business, I'll tell you, Paul Mescal is, uh, he's got some good uh, business going on because life is pretty sweet for, for him, actor Paul Mescal, that is. His small film, After Sun, garnered Mescal an Oscar nomination, and since no one imagined for a second he would actually win, it was probably like a stress-free time where he could genuinely say it was an honor just to be accepted, just to be nominated is an honor. He went right to the West End and a revival of A Streetcar Named Desire, tackling a role that made Marlon Brando an instant legend. Stella! And uh, what what happened, by the way, uh, when he did that? Oh, sold out shows, critical acclaim, a role in a sequel to Gladiator. And this weekend, he received Best Actor at the Olivier's, the British equivalent to the Tony Awards. So, you know, just a few things happened. Other big winners include Killing Eve's Jodie Comer, who won Best Actress for her turn in the one-woman show Prima Fasci. Which is coming to Broadway, by the way, in April, so get your tickets. The best new musical was Standing at the Sky's Edge with a score by Richard Hawley, a pop star both with pulp and as a solo act, by the way. Uh, But the big winner of the night was My Neighbor Totoro, an adaptation of the classical animated film by Hayao Miyazaki. It won six Olivier's, including Best Entertainment or Comedy, to which Hayao Miyazaki said, wait, what? Big deal, big deal. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they have Best Musical and Revival. They have Best Drama and Revival. And then they have Best Entertainment or Comedy. What does that mean? Yeah, it's like an event, a thing, a circuit, you know, something. But like, what if it was a funny play? Does that count as a comedy rather than a drama? Like the play that goes wrong, does that be in a different cat? I don't know what's going on there. But this is big news because you're seeing shows that are coming to Broadway. Standing at the Sky's Edge is transferring to the West End in 2024. It's about 60 years in the life of a family living in the projects. That's my my term for people living in public housing, I think, in the UK. Uh, how that will do there, I, you know, they're hoping it'll do well. And It might come to the U.S., so that's a heavy lift, I think. However, Totoro returns to the RSC, the Royal Shakespeare Company, this fall for another extended run. It will definitely transfer to the West End and will definitely come to Broadway as soon as a house big enough to hold it is available. Now, Back to the Future is just coming to the Broadway. It's opening at the Winter Garden, the one-time home of Cats and Mamma Mia, so that's out. I always think of the Winter Garden as one of the big Broadway houses. It's a monster. The Palace is huge. And its renovation should be done this year, so that's a possibility. Uh, The musical Some Like It Hot at the Schubert, they're hoping to win a Tony Award for Best Musical because they're kind of struggling. A lot of shows are doing really well on Broadway right now. People are really coming back, uh, but Some Like It Hot is not one of them. Bad Cinderella, on the other hand, at the Imperial, got bad reviews, but that never stopped Andrew Lloyd Webber before. They're probably not going anywhere for a little while. The Phantom, of course, is leaving the Majestic, but that needs years of renovation. So unless the Britney Spears musical flops at the marquee, that's about it for big houses. They've got two or three that will be big enough to accommodate this show and its huge spectacle and some of the theatrical stuff that they do is just jaw-dropping. My sister saw it. My friend Louise saw it. They both thought it was amazing. So if you can go to London and see it, you should, because it's going to be a long time getting here, uh, but it'll probably be worth the wait. Well, you know, we kind of joked around about this earlier, 
Uh, but we may as well cover it now. I, I, can, I can sum this up quickly. Disney screwed over Florida. Pretty much. <laughs> so Ron DeSantis was going to take over this board. Now, we reported at the time that Disney had already avoided most problems. Other state senators were calling out the government and saying DeSantis really didn't pull anything off because Disney wasn't going to lose its tax status. It would still be able to do infrastructure projects. It was still basically in charge, but the, the members of one board were going to be appointed by DeSantis. Big deal. Well, guess what? It's even less of a deal than we thought because before DeSantis's people took over, those right-wing culture warriors who know nothing about infrastructure or overseeing a county and the needs of a massive, massive multinational corporation like Disney and its properties at Disney World. Uh, before that happened, like the day before, practically, the people on the board who had been appointed by Disney it was basically a Disney-run board. They signed a new contract with Disney that basically gave Disney every power they possibly could for the next thousand years. <laughs> it's literally, it lasts in perpetuity. And if that isn't held up in court, it lasts until the latest descendant of King Charles III dies off sometime in the future, there's some legal reason well, why you, you make you, this claim. Because you can't have in perpetuity. Okay, so yeah, but why, why no, no, print King Charles? In, in, in a legal, well, because kings, first of all, they usually get pretty good health care, okay? And royal royal <laughs> people usually get pretty mm-hmm. darn good. Just look at, uh, you know, Queen Elizabeth, she lived to 96. No, so here's the thing. It's not the last descent. It's the last descendant. descent. Li- yeah, which means not Prince William, not his heir, but like. It's like Louis. Yeah, like all the way, like people that aren't even born yet. Right. And, and of course, you also have very good family trees. So you know exactly who the descendants of right. the king are. That's another reason because you want to keep track of those people. But let's get clear here. Disney is was the first major employer in central Florida to pay $15 an hour. Now it's just agreed to a new contract for its 45,000 workers, as they well should have done a long time ago, to start their minimum wage at $18 an hour, with workers seeing their wages rise some $550 to $860 an hour over what they already make in the next five years. So that's long overdue. They're a major employer. They should be paying those people that money, and the state should not be punishing them for taking a stance on a public issue. That is not something you should punish companies for, whether they're supporting Trump or supporting something that, uh, or taking a stance against something that a governor is doing. So I have to agree with Bob Iger on this one. You know, I, I think, well, you know, let's put the special tax status aside for a second. Uh, yeah, the whole thing was crazy to begin with, but that happened 60 Taking it away should not be punishment for something right. political. It should be something you end because you think it's a ridiculous thing and you do it in the right way. Imagine if Ron DeSantis said, I don't like Michael Giltz. I'm going to. Well, he doesn't. He hates me. Well, but I'm going to I'm going to create a law or create some provision that only goes after him. And, and that's pretty much. Look, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. Citizens United made it so that a, a corporation was a person. Now, you, and that, so you're basically doing it. You're basically creating laws and, and going after what is the equivalent of a person. Well, that's actually illegal. You cannot do that. You cannot pass a law that focuses and zeroes in on exactly one person, I believe, all the way to the Supreme Court, that that's, uh, that happens. Uh, Citizens United had nothing to do with whether a company is a person. It has to do with campaign finance laws and free speech. Yeah, but, they, but yes, correct. But the free speech of a person, that was what the, uh, the whole point was. Uh, it has the same rights as a person, Correct. I mean. 
Oh, in terms of, of that, that, that spending money on a campaign is free speech and you can't limit a corporation any more than you can limit a person. Correct. Okay. I thought there was another law that also uh, was different than that, but yeah. So it's complicated. It's messy. It's kind of inside baseball. It is. And this week, James Patterson that, well, first of all, Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And I will take this because here's the thing. Here's how this will affect you. We will all get to see James Patterson, author, best-selling author, James Patterson. In the ring. With the editor of the New York Times book section. <laughs> and they are going to go cut a deal with Ari Emanuel or whoever they have to cut a deal with. And they will be duking mono it out. Mono duking it in out. the ring. Yes. Yeah. Not actually, no. Oh. But he wrote an open letter to the editor of the Times, James Patterson, just as we went on air. I couldn't find it in his Twitter feed, even though the New York Post links to it there. Um, but uh, it's been reported elsewhere about this story. He says, I love the New York Times. I've been reading them forever since I moved to New York. He reads it every single day. He loves your work. However, your bestseller list is a joke. I have a new book out, and there's no way this book should not be on your list. There, uh, it's according to BookScan, which tracks actual book sales, just the way Billboard SoundScan tracks actual album sales, rather than oh, you call up a, a record store and say, hey, what's your top five, you know, albums? And they say, oh, I think it's Born in the USA. Instead of doing that, they track actual point of sale purchases of books. And on that list, he has sold more this week with this new book, more than every other book around except for three books. So it should be ranked fourth on the book scan list. And he says, there's no way this shouldn't appear on the New York Times list. His publisher reached out to the Times and the Times said, we don't deal with raw sales. Now, what that means is there are politicians who like want to pump up their book and get it on the bestseller list and they get people to buy a thousand copies, 10,000 copies at a time. That doesn't count as a sale. They try and catch that stuff and say, no, no, that's not a sale in a bookstore to people. That's you buying your own book or giving people money to buy your book or getting people to buy your book. And it's not a real purchase. And they ignore that, which they have the right to do. So there's a big, I don't know why he would have raw sales like that. It is a book about cops. So maybe there were some raw or big bulk purchases by police organizations, but it's James Patterson. Every book he puts out hits the New York Times bestseller list. It's inconceivable to me, my little mind, that his newest book would not hit the bestseller list. It's in a genre he writes about all the time. Not quite true. It's nonfiction, but it's about cops. He's a well-known everything. Kids books, fiction, nonfiction, extended series. They all hit the bestseller list. So I'm with him on this one. He's like, this doesn't make any sense. This is wrong. You need to fix how you come up with your formula. And that's the problem. The New York Times does not base its bestseller list on actual sales. It does a survey. It calls up stores and chains and says, what do you got going on? How many sales do you have? Then it puts it all into a formula, weights it, and tries and figures out what should be the national sales based on the mix of stores that it surveys. Nobody knows what it does. It's proprietary information. They keep their formula secret. They don't even like to talk about who they survey. But the problem here is that's simply not as good as actual sales They, they, they call me book every scan. week and they, they say, what book did you buy? And I'm like, uh, what's, a, what's a book? Mm, well, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't want to give up their power over the bestseller list. They don't want to outsource it to BookScan, even though that would be more accurate than what they're doing now. They have a, a list that's decades old. It's acclaimed. It's esteemed. It's the most important list in the country, but it's not based on actual verifiable book sales. Nobody likes raw bulk sales that aren't actual sales, but 
That's probably not what's happening with James Patterson. He's not trying to gin the game up. He gets bestsellers every day of the week. So whatever's going on, number one, it's true. The New York Times does not have a great way of getting book sales. And two, they also block out books like young adult novels because of Harry Potter. They forever banned young adult novels or books like uh, Dr. Seuss's Oh, The Places You'll Go, which popped onto the list every year come graduation time. Now it doesn't pop on the list because they decided, yeah, it's the best-selling book this week, but we don't care. We're tired of reporting on it. Imagine if you put in Titanic back in the theaters, it hit the top 10, and the box office gross people said, yeah, we don't care. That's an old movie. We don't care about that. No, that's not how it works. What is the best-selling book this week? So he has a good point. We'll have to see what happens. The Times is not going to change how they do business. And that's a shame. Well, you know, uh, I don't think you're going to kill off the New York Times bestseller list anytime soon. Nope, you're right. But it is time for obituaries. Uh, A big one at the top. Legendary record exec Seymour Stein has died at the age of 80. Do you know the record label Sire? Yes. Right. Sire Records, great label, Talking Heads and so on. He helped found Sire, he and another guy. He started working at Billboard when he was just 13 years old, copying the charts by hand for his personal files and helping compile the newly launched Hot 100. He was a kid. He wasn't even in high school yet. That's so cool. I would have loved to work at Billboard when I was 13. He then worked at two labels. And then in the late 60s, he launched Sire Records starting with some albums by Fleetwood Mac, who at the time were a blues-oriented band. Really good, but not setting the world on fire. But his first signing was a band that included Steven Tyler of Aerosmith. He was the lead singer in this early band, and that eye for talent would serve him well. Throughout his career, he signed great talent and... He got great relationships with labels overseas, forging relationships with cool indies like uh, in the UK, Australia, and elsewhere. He signed or distributed bands and artists that defined multiple eras. The Ramones, The Talking Heads, The Smiths, The Pretenders, Lou Reed, The Cure, Depeche Mode, Ice-T, The Replacements, Echo and the Bunnymen, Madness, The Undertones, everything but The Girl, who have a new album coming out. I'm very excited. Aztec Camera, Erasure, Seal, Katie Lang, Wilco, and on and on. In fact, the band Bell and Sebastian wrote a song called Seymour Stein about his decision not to sign them to their label. They were bummed. This is why he is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He is a record exec who absolutely deserves it. Oh, here's the bit. He yeah, here, here's, here's <laughs> the kicker because I was like, he's, you know, Sire was, yeah, go ahead. Tell, t- Madonna, he yeah. signed Madonna. I love this quote from Billboard. It says, quote, I signed her because I believed in Mark Kamens, who I thought was the greatest DJ, and he wanted to be a producer. So I gave him some money to bring me an artist, and the third or fourth thing he brought me was Madonna. And yes, I was very involved at the beginning. Then I realized this woman is smarter than all of us. Just get out of her way. End quote. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, uh, also Emmy, uh, Emmy winning producer. Uh, how do you pronounce her name? Nanika Garland? Nanika Garland. She died at 49 from a heart attack. Very sad news. You know, she was great at her job because she began as an assistant on the daytime soap, One Life to Live, and worked her way all the way up to the top. She followed her boss to LA and General Hospital. Uh, She became a producer, earned multi-Emmy nominations, and got the statue itself in 2021. They even named a character after her. She was also a half-sister to Tupac Shakur. Oh, who knew that? I didn't know that. Uh, Well, the lyricist and a member of Procol Harum died, so I guess he's now going to be a whiter shade of pale, right? Is that the... uh... Oh, God, yes, that's that's terrible. (laughs) Nobody from his family is listening, I hope, but we say that because lyricist Keith David will 
live forever. He didn't sing really or play an instrument, but he wrote memorable, great lyrics for the progressive rock band Pro Call Harem. And of course, he's immortalized forever thanks to the song A Whiter Shade of Pale, an epic tune based on a melody by Bach with lyrics that refer to Vestal Virgins. And somehow it all became a hit. And in fact, I go to dinner at Panera every night and Vestavia, which has a Roman temple for Vestal Virgins. It's like it was on somebody's estate. There's some Southern person with a huge plantation and they had this temple for Vestal Virgins. And when that plantation got sold, People saved it and put it on top of the hill. So every time I head to uh, Panera, I see the temple to Vestal Virgins and I sing A Whiter Shade of Pale in my head. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, I guess you're not making a, a satire out of it then. No, no. That's what Mark That's Russell right. would do. See, see, I want to see Boy. what I did there. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was great. Tell us about him. Uh, well, you, you actually I know more about him than I do. I don't really know that much about him. Well, he's a different kind of songwriter from, uh, from uh, 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 Keith David. Uh, he was a political satirist, Mark Russell, and he died at 90. He found his niche as a songwriter. Uh, he'd come on stage, tell a few jokes, and then he'd start singing songs. Oh. He would set political scandals and news of the day to pithy song lyrics and popular melodies. He toured the country, did PBS specials for decades. He made fun of Republicans and Democrats alike. Mostly, he set new lyrics to popular songs, much like a, a D.C. Al Yankovic. Um, like, uh, when Reagan would doze off during cabinet meetings, you know, you heard about Reagan yeah, dozing off yeah. and falling asleep. He sang a song to lullaby and good night. See the cabinet in session must be boring. I hear snoring. Someone's getting his rest. You know, that was his shtick. Okay. He did it to Walter Mondale. He did it to Bill Clinton, Hillary. He, you know, everything's coming up. Rodham, you name it. He did it. It was all harmless, but momentarily amusing. And I guess we're sticking with music th today uh, because yeah. here we got Oscar winner Ryuchi Sakamoto, one of my favorite composers, uh, because every, any obit in Hollywood that can begin with, with you know, Oscar winner does so. And he is an Oscar winner for uh, The Last Emperor. He wrote the score for The Last Emperor and he shared that with David Byrne and Kang Su. Uh, he's a Japanese composer, was a Japanese composer uh, and he wrote one of my favorite scores uh, and a score that I know you have heard because mm -hmm. it is used in tons of trailers. The score <laughs> to The Sheltering Sky. Yes. Yes, that's used a lot, as is his, uh, one of his most acclaimed works, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. That was his debut as a film composer and an actor. He played the, the male lead opposite David Bowie in that war film. Uh, and he was also, before that, a pioneer of electronic music with the Japanese band Yellow Magic Orchestra. Uh, he won an Oscar, a Grammy, a BAFTA, lots of honors. Um, he went to the same preschool, the same wacky, arty preschool as Yoko Ono. It's a very famous. He composed the music for the opening ceremonies of the 92 Olympics in Barcelona. I don't know why it wasn't a Spanish composer, but good for him. And he wrote a solo song called Energy Flow. And in 99, it was used in a commercial in Japan for an energy drink. And the song then soared up the charts and became the first instrumental to hit number one in Japan. Wow. Isn't that cool? By the way, our in-house film critic, Aaron Rich, really likes the score for Babel, and that prominently includes several big contributions by Sakamoto. Uh, and a fellow member of Yellow Magic Orchestra, really an important group in terms of using synth and stuff like that, Yukihiro Takahashi, he died in January. I don't think we covered him. Their first two albums, the self-titled debut and Solid State Survivor, those are the ones to check out. Yeah, I mean, a really, I, I guess he, he died at 71 of cancer, so... Uh, he was working right up until the very end. 
Yes, yes, we got credits, music still to hear from Ryuchi Sakamoto, and you'll hear more from us in the weeks to come. Yes, uh, so why not subscribe to our show so that you don't miss a single episode? You can do so in any podcast aggregator, anywhere you get podcasts, you can find us. We are free, so iTunes, Google Podcasts, Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. Please do rate and review us in any one of those aggregators that allows you to do so. It helps us out when you do. That information can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as those ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter, at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like our page. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. And Michael Giltz is a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's Merry Christmas, Sperling Reich. Oh, don't think that. Strangely, it's, it's available. No, it's available. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> well, you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on that website, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. (laughs) 